a time when all the rest of the world had been given over to sin and rebellion, where there's demon possession at an alarming rate, Noah stands alone. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. As we approach God's word this morning, may we, as Ian encouraged us, to do so with all reverence and honor. The Puritan pastor, William Beveridge, he said this about God's word. Well, God's word is read in either of the chapters, whether of the Old or the New Testament. Receive it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And therefore, hearken to it with the same attention, reverence, and faith, as you would have done if you had stood by Mount Sinai when God proclaimed the law and by our Savior's side when he proclaimed the gospel. This is truly God's inerrant word. He and his providence has preserved it for us. We are to come in reverence and humility, asking the Lord and the Holy Spirit to teach us. We need his help. Without the Holy Spirit's help, we cannot understand God's word. If you are visiting today. We are currently in a series through the book of Genesis. We teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through God's word. Today we are in Genesis chapter 6. And over the last couple Sundays, we've seen the entrance of sin into the world. We've seen the fruit that sin produces. And we've seen last week the legacy that Adam left, lived out in two of his sons. One branch of the family line continued in rebellion against God, and the other branch was made up of men chosen by God to begin the line of the promised seed, of the Messiah who would come. These were men who walked with God and called upon his name, as we saw. And God, in his grace, did not walk away and leave mankind to destroy himself in sinfulness. No, from the very beginning of time, we see that our God is a God who saves. He is a God who keeps his promises. And yet, even as we come to this passage and we see all of the world almost in great rebellion to God, there is still one family, one man, who did not. And so God keeps his promises He is still God who saves, even if it is just this one family. At our men's gathering on Monday, we talked a little bit more in our group about what it means to leave a legacy. We saw that Adam left a legacy for his sons. And so the question is, what legacy will we leave, our children? question to ask yourself is, will my great or even great-great-grandchildren know who I am? Well, they know who I am, not because that I've accomplished some amazing worldly feat, but because there is a line of godliness that has come from you. There's a line of godliness that our children, that our grandchildren, even great-grandchildren can look to and say, I'm blessed today because my great-great-grandparents walk with the Lord. Now, of course, that's in God's providence and plan, 
but may we desire to live a legacy for our children and for our children's children as those who walked with the Lord. Well, today in chapter 6, we see the conditions on earth right before the flood. And today we see the great consequence of sin, the blotting out of man and animals, a punishment for the severe wickedness on earth. God is gracious, he is faithful, but we also see today that he is a righteous judge. And yet we will end today seeing his gracious favor on Noah and in turn, his gracious favor on all of us. If you have your Genesis scripture journals and are taking notes, we have an outline this morning. If you haven't picked up one of the journals, we encourage you to. There's some in the back there. We have three points this morning. We're going to see giants in the land in verses 1 through 4. Then we're going to see grievous punishment. And finally, gracious favor in verse 8. Now, as we come to these opening four verses of Genesis 6, these friends are listed as among the most interesting, yet some of the most difficult and debated verses in Scripture. Who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? There have been countless arguments, articles, commentaries written about this. There's basically four views that are within orthodoxy that use good, solid biblical hermeneutics, uh, but there's some unbiblical views as well, such as the view that the Nephilim are space aliens, and we're not going to go down that road today. Uh, but if you would like more info on this, I can send you a great article from Answers in Genesis that walks through these four views in, in a lot of depth and the arguments for uh, as we look at the whole counsel of God's word and the arguments against. But I'll be clear with you right up front, though, um, based on my study of this text and taking into account other parts of Scripture, which we're going to look at, uh, I believe that these four verses are speaking about demonic activity and demonic possession of very sinful men with the goal of overthrowing God's decree, overthrowing God's plan for the world. <clears throat> And again, this all goes back to Satan. We have seen him working both out in the open with Adam and Eve and behind the scenes with Cain and Abel to thwart God's purposes, to thwart his promise that the seed of the woman would crush his head. He knows he will fail, and yet he will not stop. He failed with Cain and Abel, and now he's trying another tactic, to use the evil human heart and take advantage of how far man has gone into corruption in order to see the whole human race rise up in rebellion against their creator. Now, I encourage you to study these verses out. Uh, if you study these verses and you come and lean toward one of the other four views, that is wonderful. It is difficult to be 100% dogmatic with these verses, um, so we can have a discussion with that. Uh, but we won't miss the bigger picture in all of this as well. As far as Satan goes, his fall and his goals are described in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Revelation 12. And you can take some time and read through those in your own time. But we know that he did take a third of the heavenly angels with him. Angels who became evil and they were cast out of heaven. Now, God primarily has created angels to worship him, to ascribe glory and honor and majesty to the only God. But 
We also see angels working in other ways. One of the ways was to minister to believers, and we see this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. But these angels who fell, they sided with Lucifer and his rebellion against the Creator, and so they went from ministering to believers to possessing unbelievers in order to thwart God's purposes. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 again. <clears throat> when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so we see here, in this time before the flood, man was continuing to multiply, to fill the earth. Unfortunately, it was in the wrong direction. The world was headed in a very sinful direction. And the godly line of Seth that we looked at last week was very much a minority. At the end of this time, Noah and his family were the only ones that were left that were found to be righteous on the earth. An important key to understanding this section is to rightly define the sons of God in verse 2. Now, thankfully, as we look at God's word in the Old Testament, this is not difficult to do. The Hebrew phrase here is bene elohim, and it's used only here in our passage and three other times in the book of Job. And all the references in Job are clearly speaking about angels. We'll look at a couple of these. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And so we see here the scene in heaven when Satan is coming to accuse Job. Now, Job chapter 2, verse 1 says, Almost exactly the same thing. It's when Satan came a second time to continue to accuse Job. And the third reference is in Job 38, verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And so this is the passage where God is questioning Job, and he's saying, where were you when I made the earth? The angels were there, but you were not. But since you seem to know so much, tell me, tell me, what is the measurement of the universe since you seem to know? And God's coming at Job in a somewhat of a sarcastic way, showing Job how small he is. The angels were there. The sons of God were there. You were not, Job. So if we're consistent with the language of the Old Testament, angels are sons of God. They are the direct creation of God. That's what angels are. And men, once God created Adam and Eve, men then became the procreation of other men. And that is the distinction. So we have daughters of men here, referring to human women, and we have the sons of God, referring to angels. So as we let Scripture interpret Scripture, we can clearly identify the sons of God mentioned in these verses. Now it says that they, they found the daughters of man as attractive, and they took as whatever wives they wanted, wives they chose. And so how would this have happened? Well, again, God's word tells us in other places that sometimes angels take on the form of men. They did that in such a convincing way 
that the men of Lot, or the men of Sodom, excuse me, wanted to rape the angels who visited Lot. And every time they appear in Scripture, they appear as men, they do not appear as women. And there's a couple other observations about angels we have to make as well. The first thing is that we know that angels do not marry. Jesus said this in Matthew 22, verse 30. And secondly, the angels are spirits. They are not human. They are totally different from mankind. And God's word is clear in Genesis 1, which we learned not too long ago, that all creation was restricted to produce, God's word says, after its own kind. So what does this tell us? This tells us that there is no interspecies relationship happening here. This tells us that the children that were produced of these relationships were not some sort of hybrid demon, angel, human monstrosity. No. These were demons who left their proper domain, rebelled against God, and came to possess sinful men who had opened themselves up in their extreme sinfulness to demonic possession. And we have this phrase here. It says that they took as their wives any they chose. In the Hebrew, that describes a normal marital relationship. So this tells us that this was not demons forcing themselves upon women. No, they were possessing men and marrying women. Hebrews 13 tells us that there is a possibility that we could be in the presence of an angel when we show hospitality towards strangers. Entertaining angels unaware, is what it says. So it seems that angels often work through existing human bodies. And in the accounts that we have of demonic possession in the Gospels, demons always use humans for their purposes. So if this is demons going to possess men, what about the offspring of these relationships. Well, verse 4 tells us that the children of these relationships were known as the Nephilim, and they're also called mighty men of old, men of renown. And your translation may use the word giants, and that's what the Hebrew word Nephilim means, giants. And it's only used three times in the Old Testament. Uh, It's here and twice in Numbers 13. Number 13, you remember this story. This is where the 12 spies were sent out to scout out the promised land. And they came back, and what did they say? There's there's giants in the land. We can't go in there. And we know that gigantism is not unknown in human history. There's some recent examples of this. The world's most recent tallest man was a man named Robert Wadlow. Here he is pictured next to his father, He holds the world record for the tallest person at 8 feet 11.1 inches. And he lived from 1918 to 1940, died when he was only 22 years old. But he gained some fame by touring with Ringling, touring with Ringling Circus. And there's a woman as well. The woman that is recognized as the the tallest woman is a lady from China named Zheng Jinlian. And she measured in at 8 feet 1.75 inches tall. However, both of these pale in comparison probably to the one giant you're thinking of right now, and that's Goliath. Now, Goliath is described as being cubits tall in a span. So cubits in a span are still uh, debated as to what or how long exactly a cubit was, but a lot of people think that a cubit is 18 inches. So if a cubit is 18 inches and a span is widely regarded to be 6 inches, then Goliath was about 14 feet tall. Incredible. 
But I bring in these examples to show you that giants are not miraculous. Unusual, yes, but not unheard of. But we have some other descriptions here in our text. It says that they're mighty men of old or men of renown. And so that suggests that there was something a little unusual about these giants. And what was happening in these verses leads into the rest of our section this morning, showing that this union between the sons of God and the daughters of men brought about a rise in wickedness, which leads God to destroy the earth. What was Satan's plan from the beginning? It was to be like the Most High, to sit on God's throne, to overthrow him. Therefore, these mighty men possibly are part of Satan's manipulation of humanity in order to bring about a rebellion against heaven. The word mighty, it implies physical strength and also military strategy as well. And renown, it speaks of the reputation or the name that these had. And one commentator suggested that Lucifer's plan was to do selective breeding of the population through these demon-possessed relationships to produce these mighty men. It's possible, perhaps. We do know that Satan was definitely working through Hitler and his plan to grow the Aryan race and wipe out all the Jews. This kind of selective breeding has happened before. Well, what's the Lord's response to this, though? It says in verse 3, he says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And so this shows that the Lord has great displeasure in what is happening. He's saying, My patience is wearing thin. Judgment is coming. Now, the Lord shows amazing grace to all of mankind. We know that it is his kindness that brings us to repentance. But as the verse go on in Romans 2, 5, we read this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God does abide with us, but not forever not with those who continually spurn his grace and continue in their sin. He gives them over to destruction. And so that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you have 120 years left. 120 years to repent. As I've read this passage in years past, I used to think that this means that we can only live up to 120 years. It's talking about the average span of a human's life. But that's not what the text is saying. There's no... There's no evidence that supports that. Noah's children lived for many centuries. And it isn't until the time of Moses that we see the average lifespan coming close to 120 years. No, this is God speaking as creator and judge of the world, giving the world one last warning. But before we move on to our next point, I want to just point you quickly to three other passages in the New Testament that lend support to the view I'm giving you today. The first one is 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. It's referring to Jesus. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So God's word gives us a a couple references to an event in the past that was so horrible that the punishment was to send those angels into a special prison. 
And so in this passage, he's referring to Jesus. Jesus, after his resurrection, he went to these spirits in prison, and he proclaimed his victory over death and the grave. The second passage is 2 Peter 2. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them to hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And the Greek word used here for cast them to hell, it's one word, even though it's a phrase in English, it's the word tartarao. And it's the only time that it's used in all of Scripture. And it means the deepest, darkest corner of hell. And only these demons are said to have gone there. And the final passage is in Jude, verse 6, which says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So these passages here in the New Testament possibly referring to the view I'm giving you today. Now, I encourage you to do your own study of this. We could talk about this quite a bit more, but we need to move on. Uh, I encourage you to study it out. Uh, I'll send you that article if you would like. Look through those four views. They're all very interesting uh, and worth your time, worth your time to study through them. But we don't want to miss the overarching point here. And that is that we see the wickedness of mankind progressing to such a point that God is going to enact his righteous, perfect judgment. It's increased to such a point that demons are literally moving in and are designed to sabotage God's purposes. But of course, we know that God's purposes will never be sabotaged, and he responds with grievous punishment in verse 5 through 7. Grievous punishment. He says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So the evidence is clear. God saw everything that was happening. And this points us back to what we've been saying previously, that nothing is hidden from God's sight. The wickedness of what happened with the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim, you could say that was the last straw. And these men of renown, you could call them famous, they set a standard for the rest of mankind. And we see this in our own time, in our own society. We, could, we see those who are famous, quote-unquote. We see those who have influence in our society desiring to set a standard for all of us, to set a standard for our, our country and for our culture. Recently, there's been a trend for women who have had abortions to be proud about it and to share it with no shame on social media, saying, I've killed my child and I'm celebrating it. The depth of depravity, it's horrible. I was, I was writing this sermon this week. I, I came to tears writing this, just considering how far we have gone. You all know that we are 
literally in Pride Month right now, where sexual perversion is on full display, and it's applauded and endorsed by everyone of influence in our society. And if you do not toe the line, if you do not wear what they want you to wear, say what you want, they want you to say, then you will be ostracized, you will be hated, you will be possibly fired. All kinds of things may happen to you for speaking truth. Look no further than even locally, our own Tampa Bay Rays and the five players who chose not to wear the insignias on their uniforms. And if you watched any of the news the media that was commenting on what was going on. It was horrible, horrible what they were saying about these men who because of their convictions of God's word were very, very loving and saying, hey, we're not trying to prevent anybody from coming, but we personally cannot wear that because that's endorsing sin. That's what they were saying. In our, in our men's meeting, again, uh, Dan Campbell, he said that we should have a humility month not a pride month, a humility month. We definitely should. Because, friends, we are living out Romans 1 right now, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God's word says every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this speaks to the total depravity of mankind. It speaks to what comes from his heart. Because our heart, friends, our heart is the seat of our emotions. It's the seat of our thinking. It's the seat and root of all our behavior comes from our heart, the conditions of our heart. Scripture is very clear on this. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And this is not speaking of someone who is naive, has no self-control, just kind of goes with the flow and just gets all into all kinds of trouble. No, this is talking about someone who does evil deliberately planning and plotting to sin. And if we're honest, this is all of us this morning. We have all plotted and planned to sin. Jeremiah 17, 9, you know this one. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus said in Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And John MacArthur says at this point, he says, God looked into the heart of man and saw that everything formed there, everything developed there, everything designed there, everything conceived there, every image, every idea, every ideology, every thought pattern, every philosophy, every self-styled religious view, all of it, everything that was formed in man was only evil continually, everything. You say, wow, that's harsh. I thought everybody was basically good. No. That's the lie of the world, trying to deny the reality of sin so it can deny the goodness of God's law and can deny the need for a savior and deny any higher authority other than me, other than self. If you have a moment, you can go watch Matt Walsh's documentary called What is a Woman? And he goes around, 
He goes to professors. He goes to doctors. He goes to people on the street just asking a simple question. Can you tell me what a woman is? He can't get an answer. He can't get an answer. And when he brings in truth of science, truth of biology, the very visible differences he goes on, he is met with anger. He is met with people wanting to leave the conversation. He's called names over a very, very simple question. Because, why? Because it attacks us. It attacks who I want to be. It attacks the idea that I am in control, what I say goes, and if I decide that I want to be a woman, then that's what I will be. Now, unfortunately, Matt Walsh, he does not bring God's word into, he doesn't bring the truth of God's word very much into this documentary, but still recommend it. It's very eye-opening. It's very interesting. And we say this all the time, and we have to, friends, understand how God looks at sin in his perfect holiness before we can understand the great grace he's given us. We have to understand how far we are from that standard. Only then can we understand God's righteous judgment and the mercy he's shown us. Only then can we understand what great a salvation we've been given. Verse 6 says that the Lord regretted. Older translations say that he repented that he made man and it grieved him to his heart. And so we see a contrast here. We see the great wickedness in man's heart and yet we see the great grief in God's heart. What does this tell us about God? Well, it tells us that he is not just some spectator that's just standing back and observing, neutral. No. No, look at the qualities ascribed to God. It grieved his heart. This speaks of a loving father, a father who looks at the foolishness and bad decisions of a child that has led him down a road of destruction. He says in verse 7 that he was sorry that he made man. He is sad. It's painful for him to watch what has happened. But don't get a picture in your mind that God is just some dejected, crying father. No, it's much more than that. God is perfectly just. He has a perfect anger over sin and sinners. He is perfectly righteous. So this isn't regret like, oh no, maybe I've made a wrong decision. No, this is God expressing his holy displeasure against sin. It's an affront to his holiness. And it's similar to a situation that you might find yourself in, where you extend great kindness and love towards someone, and they throw it back in your face. They use you for selfish gain. They show you nothing but arrogance and disrespect. You too would be grieved by this, and most likely would resolve not to show the same level of kindness unless there was repentance. But let's remember a couple things. Does God hate sin? Yes. Yes, he does. Should we also hate sin? Yes. Should we also grieve over our own sin? Yes. So may we come in humility before the Lord, recognizing that it is our sin that has grieved him. May we grow in our hatred over sin and yet all the more thankful of his grace and mercy. In this whole section of scripture that we've looked at so far in Genesis, from chapter 1 to chapter 6, God never changes. It's man who has changed. 
and it is man who will reap the consequences. Verse 7, we see here God's decision to destroy man for his sinfulness. And so when he regretted that he made man, he resolved to destroy man. And there's also an application for us here. It goes along with what I just said in regards to our sin. Those that truly repent of their sin will resolve in the strength of God's grace to destroy sin in their lives, to mortify it, to put it to death, we're told to do. We see how seriously God looks at sin in the world. He resolves to destroy the world. So may we look just as seriously at the sin in our own lives and resolve to destroy it. We are at risk at mocking God when we say that we are sorry and yet we continue to indulge in the same sin. And yet his grace is always sufficient for us. And that's the amazing thing. He says here that he will blot out man. The original Hebrew is I will wipe man off the face of the earth, similar to how you would wipe crumbs off a table. And we see the same language in 2 Kings verse 21. He says, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. We see here in Genesis that he refers to mankind as his creation, but that will not stop the coming judgment. It's as if he's saying, even though I created him, this will not excuse him. So if we refuse to have him as our sovereign creator, then we will have him as our judge. Isaiah 27 verse 11 says, For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. Very similar language. But you'll notice that in verse 7 that this punishment extends to other parts of creation as well animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Why? Well, because these things were made for man, so they must be destroyed along with man. Man was to have dominion over these things and steward them for God's glory. But he did the opposite, using these good gifts of creation to satisfy his own sinful desires. So they will be destroyed as well. As we come to the end of this point, we see that God is grieved, God is sad, God is regretting that he made man. And so destruction is the only path forward. We must say that God did not make man sin. God didn't want man to sin. But God doesn't accept excuses for sin either. If man rejects God, then hell is the only option. Scripture is clear that God takes no delight, no delight in the destruction of the wicked. You remember that Jesus himself wept over the state of Jerusalem. Yet he is perfectly just. And sin, as we saw two weeks ago, always has consequences. You can imagine, that would be hard to imagine, but imagine a world of about a billion people, because that's what population estimates say that the world was close to at the time of the flood. About a billion people. And no one would turn from their sin. No one would cry out to God for mercy. Except for one man and his family. And so our last point this morning, we briefly see gracious favor. Verse 8. 
but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And your translation may use the word grace. That's a great way to put it. And it would be the first time that the word grace is mentioned in the Bible. And this shows us that God knew the heart of every single person on, in the world, on the earth. And there was only one who would continue in the godly heritage of Seth. We see God's grace magnified towards Noah and that he would be God's chosen instrument of mercy when all of mankind besides him would be instruments of God's wrath. There's a question that comes up. Would, was Noah, similar to how we as believers are today, was Noah ridiculed and mocked for walking with God and while he was building the ark? I think probably so. He's called the herald of righteousness or the preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter. But God's word doesn't say. It doesn't tell us one way or the other. Even though children's cartoons and other movies and, and books tend to depict people mocking Noah, raising their fists at him and at God. But God's word doesn't say. Even Keith Green, who's one of my favorite singers of all time, he sings in the song, he'll take care of the rest. He sings this, you just think about Noah toting his umbrella when there wasn't a cloud in the sky. All his neighbors would laugh at his pet giraffe and oh, snicker as he passed by. But the Lord said, hey, Noah, be cool. Just keep building that boat. It's just a matter of time till they see who's going to float. You just keep doing your best and pray that it's blessed. Hey, Noah, I'll take care of the rest. I'm the weatherman. It's a nice song with some truth, but a lot of embellishments. Well, friends, as we close out our time together, let's continue what we've been doing the last couple weeks. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. To the book of Hebrews. Get your pages rattling. Hebrews chapter 11. The last several weeks, we've been ending our time in Hebrews 11. We're going to do that today. Uh, let's remind ourselves of where we have come in Hebrews. Hebrews 11, we're going to be in verses 1. We'll read verses 1 through 7. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We'll stop there. So if Abel shows us how we worship in faith. We talked about that two weeks ago. And Enoch shows us how we walk in faith. Then Noah shows us obedience in faith. 
And so we see a couple things here. First, we see how Noah responded to the word of God. He dropped everything and he built the ark in reverence. He treated God's message of destruction with great respect and awe. Verse 9 of Genesis 6 tells us that Noah was a righteous man. He had been faithful up to this point, faithful with smaller things, and the Lord chose to give Noah a great thing to do. Secondly, we see that Noah condemned the world. He was a herald or a preacher of righteousness. In a time when all the rest of the world had been given over to sin and rebellion, where there's demon possession at an alarming rate, Noah stands alone. God had given them 120 years to repent. They ignored that warning. They didn't believe in the promise of punishment. And so they didn't believe in the promise of salvation either. Charles Spurgeon puts this well. He says, He who does not believe God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it through atoning blood. I charge you who profess the Lord not to be unbelieving with regard to the terrible threatenings of God to the ungodly. Believe the threat even though it should chill your blood. Believe though nature shrinks from the overwhelming doom. For if you do not believe, disbelieving God at one point will drive you to disbelieve God upon the other points of revealed truth. It's very true. Disbelieving God at one point will drive you to disbelieve God upon the other points of revealed truth. If you do not believe that God will punish sin, there will be no need for you to believe that you need a Savior. But finally, we see that Noah received God's righteousness. He became an heir. And we know that those who come to God in faith receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so every person who trusts in the Lord receives his righteousness. Now, of course, we don't always practice righteousness, but our position before the Lord doesn't change. Our position is secure because we are resting on Christ's finished work, his perfect righteousness, not our own. And so Noah exercised true faith. And thousands of years before Jesus was born as a baby, God looked at Noah and saw him through the finished work of Christ. And so he looks at us in the same way today. The Old Testament saints were saved through their trust in God by looking ahead in faith to God's promise of the snake crusher who was to come. And we, on the other side of the cross, we look back in faith to what Jesus has accomplished, trusting in his finished work. So friends, today we've seen a couple of things. We've seen giants in the land. We've talked about grievous punishment as a consequence for the great depravity of man. And we've seen gracious favor bestowed on those who come to God in true faith. In the coming weeks, we're going to be studying the life of Noah and see exactly what the punishment of the flood looked like. But for now, the question that we must ask ourselves, the questions that we must consider are, have you truly considered how your sin is an offense to a holy God? Have you considered the future punishment that awaits those who die in rebellion against God? Have you considered those things? Do you come to church out of religion, out of duty, and live as the world the rest of the week with no thought for the holiness of God? 
Contrary to what the world says, there is not one good person alive on this earth. We have all broken God's law, and we must receive the payment, the wages for our sin, which is death unless Jesus has paid it for you. Ray Comfort, I love how he explains it as he goes on the street witnessing. He says, imagine you are called into court because you have a number of unpaid traffic violations. And the judge has every right to give you the maximum sentence. But then somebody steps up and pays your fine. The judge can let you go. He can say, you're out of here because the debt has been paid. Jesus came and paid our fine. He stepped in and took the punishment we deserve. And now our relationship with God can be restored because justice has been served. God's perfect justice was poured out on Christ so that we can be set free from sin and death. And the Bible says that all who repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone will have Christ's work applied to them. So have you done that? Have you repented of your sins? If you haven't, then you will pay for your sins for all of eternity. And so our, we implore you this morning, repent and trust in the gospel. Trust in Christ. There's a beautiful hymn written by William Reese. It's called Here is Love. You can find a recording of it uh, done by Matt Redmond several years ago. It says, here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgate of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. If you are not in Christ, it's not going to be grace and love pouring out like mighty rivers. It's going to be condemnation and wrath pouring out unceasingly. But the work has been done. The work has been done, friends. May the Holy Spirit drive you to repentance this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we have in it. And although, Lord, once again, this is a very sobering passage to consider, so we look at the depravity of the human heart and the punishment that was coming. Lord, we know that even the, the horrible punishment of the flood is going to pale in comparison to it in a, an eternity separated from you. And so, Lord, we thank you for the story of Noah. We thank you that he was commended as righteous because of his faith, Lord. And that same righteousness that was given to Noah can be given to us as we come to you in faith. Lord, for those of us here who are believers, may you continue to sanctify us. May you continue to grow us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that you are the one that does the work of salvation from beginning to end. You are even the one that, as Ephesians 
tell us we are created, we are your workmanship, created for, in Christ Jesus for good works, which you have prepared beforehand for us. Not only do you save us, and not all that work is yours, but you are the one that give us the good works to do for your glory. And so all our boasting, all our praise must go back to you. And we look forward to the day when our salvation will be complete and you will finish the work that you started in us. May we hold on to that hope. May we live as those who truly have hope in this world of darkness and lies and sin and hatred. Ultimately, we know, Lord, that this is hatred of you. The world hates us because it hated you first. We ask for your strength, Lord, to live as members of your kingdom, Lord, to live as children of the light, not walking in the darkness, but walking in the light, walking in the spirit. Lord, we ask that you would be our vision. You are our high king of heaven. Our victory is found in you. May we hold on. May we rejoice in that truth now. In Jesus' name, amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.